This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, a spooky ghost restarts the alt-right. Oh no! Hello everybody! Welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review, critique, and other related things show. My name is Gep, and I am joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dr. Izix. Hi! This was a very, very, very strange episode. Yes. It wasn't very good. And it was about children again. Children singing and dancing and twirling around and uh, being kind of loud. Yeah, did they just have a, a girth of child actors at this time? Well, I recall some of them, uh, you know, you know uh, like at least at least one of them was like a, a, the kid of one of the, uh, the guest stars, and uh, another one actually showed up in Star Trek before. So, yes. <laughs> yeah, and one, like, went on to a really interesting career. We'll get to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is the episode called, And the Children Shall Lead. Where are they leading us? I don't know. And also, you shouldn't start your episode titles with a conjunction. It just seems yes. bad. Bad form. It's against everything I learned in Schoolhouse Rock. <laughs> well, it's it's the last part of like a long, uh, you know, section of the, of the Bible there. It's like, you know, lions and lambs laying down sort of stuff. And like, this is the last part of that. I guess having the whole thing in there just be too long. So it's like, oh, I'll just cut it here. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> What is, I, I don't know this quote offhand. Is it about the apocalypse? That's the only thing that would make sense. Maybe. Uh, let's see if I can find it real quick. Uh, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the uh, fatling together, and the children shall lead them. All right, sure. Get off of them. Hmm. <laughs> it's uh, in Isaiah. So. Okay, so it's probably not about the apocalypse then. Yes. All that stuff's at the end. I remember that. Yes. <laughs> Sunday school. This episode was written by Edward J. Lasko, who wrote Star Trek, Planet of the Apes, Airwolf, and lots and lots of sci-fi and sci-fi related things. Also the Mod Squad. Airwolf's that thing that was like <laughs> Knight Rider, but with a helicopter, wasn't it? Don't remember. Airwolf? Yeah. We're in a very scattered mood today, so. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing this uh, earlier than we usually do, so uh, brains might not be working the same way as usual. Ah, the supersonic military helicopter. I'm pretty sure that's impossible. <laughs> well, I get, well I, I'd argue that it is technically possible, but the helicopter might not survive the experience. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can technically accelerate any object to supersonic speed. <laughs> Yeah, but could you still call it a helicopter afterward? <laughs> Not one in good repair. <laughs> Unless you make it out of, like, carbon nanotubes or something like that. But anyway. <laughs> this episode has a lot of child actors. And a lot yes. of them didn't do much else, so they were hard to find any particular information on. So we're just going to note some of the notable guest stars here. Mm -hmm. uh, the most notable guest star is not, in fact, an actor. Dun, dun, dun. Melvin Belly, who plays Gorgon, Gorgon was a super high-powered, fancy-pants Hollywood lawyer. So uh, representing like uh, you know, Jean-Luc Gabor, Muhammad Ali, um, some other people I don't know. 
Mae West, there we go. <laughs> Chuck Berry. I looked it up and I really couldn't find any particular information of why he is in this. Because he was on TV a lot recently during the time period and people like would recognize the face, I guess. I guess. it was. It's a very weird casting decision. I mean, he doesn't have a massive part, so I guess it worked out okay. <laughs> I guess, you know, back then, you know, uh, this, this sort of celebrity lawyer thing was like uh, like a, a professional wrestling, uh, you know, uh, is today. And, you know, <laughs> for sure, there'd never be a professional uh, wrestler who goes on and becomes an actor in Star Trek, right? That'd be absurd. <laughs> Even for that one cameo where he doesn't talk, but somehow launched his acting career anyway. Yep. <laughs> we're all better for it and we're happy. <laughs> yes. Just weird how these wings work out. <laughs> also, Melvin Belly's son, Caesar Belly, plays Steve. Uh, Craig Huxley plays Tommy. He is like the leader kid, I think. Yeah, he's like, the oldest of the, the lot, and uh, he has he's, he's certainly you know, the, the uh, Craig's there is uh, has a bit of a a, a a long list of credits for music. Yeah, we talked about him before because he yes. played Nef- Peter. What? He played Peter. Peter. Kirk. Why did I do? Oh my god, I misspelled nephew, and I thought it was a person's weird alien name. <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> I was gonna call him Nifu. Nifu, <laughs> Nifu, come! We must go to the uh, Dorblot place. <laughs> oh, he played Kirk's always dead nephew. Who yep. apparently he doesn't remember because he shows up and is like, oh, look, it's Tommy. It's not my nephew at all. <laughs> Looks totally different, guys, for reals. <laughs> he went on to produce music for TV and movies. He invented an instrument, and mm-hmm. it was used in Star Trek motion picture, and he made music for Wrath of Khan and Search for Spock. He's also been kind of attached to tons of stuff, including more Star Trek, uh, Back to the Future, um, Austin Powers of all things, <laughs> Mulan, some uh, uh, Ten Cloverfield Lane apparently. Um, huh. Yeah, so it's just very sort of uh, sound music related jo- uh, jobs there. And should you should look up a video of this instrument that he made because it's a massive stringed thing that he like basically throws a metal tube at. Nice, very weird. <laughs> uh, the, the instruments of the future. Next guest star is Pamelin Ferdin who went on to voice Lucy in the Charlie Brown TV specials. Nice. She plays Mary. I'm not going to be using many of these kids' names, so it doesn't really matter, because there's just too many of them. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, she's also in Chips and Charlotte's Web. Anyway. (laughs) And Brian Tucci, who has the most fun credits, he plays Ray. He was in every single Revenge of the Nerds movie, which I was not aware of. There were like five of these things. Yes. Plentiful. He was also in two of the Police Academy sequels, which apparently, I think by that point, they were being made for TV. Back in training in Citizens on Patrol. He had a role in a short-lived 1970s sci-fi show called Space Academy. Oh, yeah. And he also voiced Leonardo in the first three live-action Ninja Turtles movies. The fun ones. Yeah, the (laughs) decent ones. He's also an Avatar The Lost Starbender. All right, that's all the notable guest stars. 
And there was some returning rant background people too, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, I'm already dazed and confused, so. <laughs> Don't worry, that's, that's, that's this episode too. <laughs> we join the Enterprise that is responding to a distress call from a scientific colony on the planet Trichus. Not Triskelion, Trichus. There's a lot of tries. I guess there's, maybe they come in threes. Kirk, McCoy, and Spock beam down to find the entire colony dead, save for one paranoid man threatening them with his phaser, but he also dies a second later, so... Yeah, right. Well, I guess everybody's dead, Dave. McCoy finds that all the scientists killed themselves, and in the midst of this field of bodies, a group of children run in, playing and laughing and completely unaware of all these dead bodies everywhere. I don't think these kids are all right. Later, the crew buries all the dead scientists, and the children are very, very impatient, including knocking over the Federation flag, which I think is the only time we ever see this thing, and Kirk's very annoyed. It's not a very impressive flag either, unfortunately. No, it's not. It's like made of cardboard or aluminum or something. I, I, I did a humorous Captain's Log note here, my, my notes here. Uh, it says, uh, Captain's Log, we buried peeps. Everybody ex is upset except for these kids these days. McCoy thinks that it could be something called traumatic shock, which is preventing the children from knowing that their parents are dead in such a horrible, horrible way. Couldn't find anything on, on this. I don't know where they're getting their mental theories from. Uh, the future. <laughs> they send the children up to the ship with McCoy while Spock and Kirk examine the weird reading that they've been getting from a nearby cave. Once inside, Kirk becomes incredibly anxious and runs away, claiming it to be nothing more than a reaction to all the horrible things that have been happening on this planet. Hmm. Kirk, I feel ya. Is this where we say mood and then win the internet yes. with our <laughs> mental health? <laughs> a, a big mood, yes. Back on the ship, Nurse Chapel is giving the children ice cream from the food dispenser in some sort of really cool-looking onboard arboretum. I uh, believe this was made for a dip different episode, but they just kind of like reused it here. So as with everything, <laughs> nothing much happens except one kid is disappointed that the ice cream flavors he gets are both white. Uh, uh, okay. Well, maybe more sprinkles will help. Now it comes to question the children about their parents, and they all seem to immediately take a disliking to him, talking about how their parents like stupid stuff and worked too much and. And they all run off pretending to be bees until Kirk orders them to go to their room. So, you know, you're all busy, busy, busy bees. Oh, God. Kirk tries to question the oldest, Tommy, but he is also evasive, saying they aren't sad to leave their parents because they loved that planet so much. Yeah, because the parents love the planet, you know, the parents are therefore bad and terrible. Parents yeah. like to work too much, I think is what we're getting here. Well, uh, sorry, kid. That's the breaks. <laughs> In their quarters, the children chant in a circle. As you do. Till a green figure of a large man in a dress appears to tell them that they are doing well to find a ship. And they need to get to Marcus 12, which is a colony where there are millions of people that he can find more friends on. And then they can kill anyone that they don't like. Uh, everyone else will be their enemies. And you, this is how it shall be. And this is how it shall be done. On the bridge, Kirk and Spock are reviewing logs from the expedition. Lead scientist is talking about how everyone starts feeling uneasy as soon as they get to the planet and anxiety grows worse and worse. And they're just about to say something that would explain what's going on 
when Tommy comes into the bridge and shakes his fist at the monitor and it statics out. He's just fist bumping, or uh, pumping there, you know, nothing wrong with that. Kids do this all the time randomly, right? It's just a perfectly normal, not not at all jerking off motion. <laughs> Why would you think that? Uh, I was reading something about uh, they changed it in the, like, the, uh, the, the book version of this to make it less awkward. Because <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't describe that in written form. Other than, yes. Anyway. Kirk and Spock have no idea what happened, but they don't really have time to think it over because Tommy interrupts them and keeps begging them to go to Marcus 12. But Kirk predictably says no, and he and Spock agree to leave Tommy on the bridge for some reason as they go off to do other stuff. I think this might explain something in Next Generation, why Picard is so anti-kids on the bridge. Seems like it'd be a better policy. Yes. (laughs) Maybe they shouldn't just let any random person wander into the bridge. Like, I know... So you're supposed to just be on the ship, and it's going to be difficult for like people who aren't on the crew, but it still seems disruptive. This is a workspace. Get out of our workspace, kid. Come on. Tommy does his fist thing at Sulu, who breaks orbit, but still sees the planet on the view screen. Until Ahura turns around and sees empty space, but then Tommy affects her too, making her now see the planet. Oh, everything's great. Uh, I was just having a vision where we're not in orbit, and now it's back. Kids also take engineering, making one of the men knock out Scotty for trying to correct course instead of controlling Scotty. Because Scotty's mind is too powerful, I assume. For now. But I guess after he gets beat up, he'll be effect- more effective later. Now the children are on their way to Marcus 12. Hooray! <laughs> In Kirk's quarters, he, Spock, and McCoy finish washing the logs that reveals the scientists were forced to ask for a ship by an unknown force that was affecting their minds and influencing them to believe that they had no choice but to destroy themselves. Hmm, this seems like there's something terrible going on. We should maybe, like, do something about this. This is all of the information they've got except for some unimportant scenes of the families playing and having fun with the children. Also... Apropos of nothing much, they discuss how evil suppresses truth and misleads the innocent. Interesting to be just randomly injecting the theme here, but, you know, kind of doesn't really make sense. But anyway. (laughs) This is interesting, and we're solving a mystery. Did you think of the themes we're exploring in this episode? I ever write a comedy series, it's going to be something involved. I'm going to have an episode like that. that. (laughs) Whoever just starts analyzing the episode while they're in it. Kirk wants to confront the children about this evil, but McCoy warns him that if they don't process their grief correctly, their brains will break. I don't know, maybe McCoy just wants to see children cry. Kirk wants some answers, so he decides it's time to switch out the security on the planet so that he can talk to the people who have been down there. Sounds reasonable, you know, if you're seeing some side effects of this weird paranoia thing. Yeah, maybe we'll we'll be able to make a good measure of it. Uh, In case you out of that environment, we'll be able to uh, see how it affects you in the long term. He beams down replacement guards. Finds he can't beam up the other ones. Uh Uh-oh, wait. Transporter guy person, did you check to make sure that there's a planet below us? Yeah, they're no longer orbiting the planet and they just beamed two dudes into space. While at warp, apparently. (laughs) Which, like, it, it, that basically means that the entire function of the transporter is we're going to beam you, you know, two and a half miles down and hope you land on solid ground. <laughs> so, uh, I, I suspect this transporter guy just is just really incompetent. Because <laughs> this does make no sense otherwise. Kirk's obviously creating a stressed workplace environment where people can't adequately check for planets. 
Indeed. <laughs> Kirk, discovering this, rushes to the bridge where the children are chanting again. And Gorgon appears. There's a glowing man here. He's very green. He tells the children that they're facing a crisis because the enemy has discovered their operation, but they have control of the ship, and so the children should not fear. You know, if they might not have been discovered quite so quickly if they hadn't been chanting and summoning your, your, your face here on the, on the bridge while there's people that, around that aren't controlled by you. Yeah. Oh my god, what's going on? Oh, it's them. They're doing the demon summoning over there. Okay. <laughs> and again, you know, if the children are the ones that are uh, initiating the summoning ritual, uh, they're probably not the you know, most uh, experts at st uh, strategy here, so yeah, I guess I could forgive it. The kids use their powers to do a variety of things. They make Uhura look sick and aged in a mirror. What is this? Oh, her looks ugly thing that they keep doing. Because the 60s and, uh, you know, ha having beauty is how you have self-worth, I guess, or some crap. They affect the view screen, so Sulu thinks that he's flying the spaceship between giant swords. Knife eye attack! I, I really hope so you know, folks get that reference. <laughs> Kirk orders Spock to take control of the bridge, but he too gets affected, sort of, maybe, and says, nope, everything's fine. We don't see what he sees, and maybe it's a ruse. He comes around later. It's very unclear what's going on with Spock. And Kirk sort of like, have you looked around? He's like, hmm, I'm going to try this again. Hmm, no, I'm, I'm not going to. <laughs> Kirk tries to order the guards to get the kids, but they make him unintelligible and garbled so that no one can understand his orders. <laughs> yeah, they do that thing where they just have him talk backward. Apparently, he's actually giving the orders, which I guess is a nice touch. You know, I have seen, uh, you know, other media, you know, pull something like, yeah, they like have something that would be like they actually say, and then like they just say something random, like, you know, shout out to my mom or something like that. <laughs> Mock manages to clear his mind with Vulcan power and takes Kirk off the bridge. He mind melds himself. They had engineering to correct course, but they are fought off by guards. And then in the corridor, Chekhov rushes in with more guards telling Kirk that he's going to have to shoot him because he got orders from Starfleet to arrest him and kill him if he doesn't comply. And Tommy is behind him, reinforcing this with his fist pounding. Mm, Kirk's like, Man, I've been in the situation before where Chekhov was trying to murder me. Hmm, that was a parallel universe, but I still think I could take him. Yeah, he just, he just jumps him and disarms him immediately, and Tommy runs away. Aha, Kirk, for, uh, fighting things is too powerful for the children. Kirk and Spock return to the bridge, where Kirk announces that they will not be landing on Marcus 12, and the children are dubious because, they, you know, everything that's happened. Kirk now says he understands, and he's going to make the crew understand that their friend is, like, bad, and they ask them to bring out their friend. I don't know what the plan is here. Like, this is a weird turnaround. They just needed to... to, to wrap up the episode yeah it's like we don't really know how to resolve this so uh we'll try something it'll, it'll, and because we're running out of time it'll either work or this is the last episode of the series <laughs> the children then chant and summon gorgon the green angel hello kirk and spock announce that gorgon takes power from those who don't know him but they know him gorgon is arrogant and said his followers are strong but kirk uses the power of home video dun 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 is it America's Funniest? Decidedly not.
<laughs> he shows the children movies of them playing with their parents and having picnics and playing catch and, you know, good old American family time. Hooray! It's, it's uh, you know, very wholesome. They didn't suddenly switch to footage of their parents being dead. Oh no! Now, according to Kirk, the children see Gorgon for who he really is. And Gorgon begins to fade away, yelling about how they would have been his generals and such like. And uh, he, he kind of has this weird transition where he gets more and more ugly. So, once again, you know, the beauty standards of the 60s, I guess. Themes! Themes! <laughs> McCoy's really happy that Kirk made the kids cry. And I called it. <laughs> everything disappears. The set course away from Marcus Twelve. Yeah, so let's go to that starbase at the, the end. end. <laughs> so this was kind of a weird episode, but in some ways I kind of like it, despite how kind of bonkers it is. It's more cohesive. It's a you know, kind of a you know, a running plot that doesn't kind of meander in a weird way, and uh, what happens. In its, you know, despite the kind of weirdness of it, kind of makes sense in its own universe. So, it works. <laughs> the themes of this one are very mixed up and weird. A little bit. It's tr- it's definitely trying to be like anti-propaganda. I sort of saw the uh, Gorgon in the uh, the role of your your generic charismatic leader who promises all sorts of high-minded stuff. That sounds real good to folks that aren't really super experienced with the world. And, uh, well, honestly, it kind of reminds me of a lot of stuff going on in the U.S. these days. Hmm. Uh, which is kind of interesting because my that was some of my first thoughts. And then given the era that we live in now, it seems very kind of anti-culty. Because it's taking children who are unhappy with their lives and da-da-da and having the charismatic leader who promises a lot of stuff. But cults didn't really become a particular concern in America until the 1970s. So 10 years after this, when you have uh, Jamestown. Uh, All that business, the Kool-Aid. Yeah, and it's even like them saying that they're going to kill people and sacrificing stuff. It it lines up in an interesting way, but it's probably communism. Maybe. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I saw more of, I guess, a more generic sense. But, uh, you know, I guess given the context of the time, that would be the uh, primary uh, uh, target they'd be going after. I mean, it's hard to remember now but there was actually a period in the 60s after in like the 50s and 60s when america did actually run anti-fascist propaganda and including videos explaining to people how listening to random yelling demagogue people was a bad idea yeah it's uh, they're here to exploit you not to give you all the things that they're promising they might give some of you you know some of those things but that's not why they're doing it. They're there to control you and get what they want out of you. But I think the the setup and the solution is kind of telling for this episode. The entire time they talk to the children about their parents, they're like, oh, our parents work too much. And then later they show them videos of like, actually, children, you were very happy with your parents. Yeah. <laughs> and they go, oh my god, we were, we were lied to, and then they're back. Yeah, it's like, oh, and suddenly just a sudden change of mind. Deprogramming of that sort doesn't work like a switch like that. This is a very simplified version of what I guess they're trying to sort of suggest as possible, where you 
kind of get the uh, uh, the curtain pulled back and the things that you were uh, were were told that were incorrect aren't actually you know that, that all these these problems that were are are basically falsified in order to trick you into following this leader. It it does remind me a lot, like you were saying, of the stuff that's happening now, especially in the family dynamic part and in the solutions people are talking about because. Like, the entire thing that I thought was interesting with their solution is that they just tell the kids they were wrong about their family, knowing nothing else. They just show the kids videos of them playing together and go, nope, your family was great and you were happy. Yeah, it's not that easy. Uh, there is a... Try, trying to say this in a very, I guess, useful fashion here, but there is... A, res- a resistance to being just told straight up that you are wrong. And so if you're going to try to, you know, sort of make this point, you need to sort of help folks understand on their own how things are working, not necessarily just tell them straight up, hey, everything that, you know, you, you believe now is incorrect, so deal with it. Well, the particular problem that you hit, and it's one that I see people hitting all over the place recently is they're not wrong because that's why there's resistance when you come to someone in that kind of situation and you go oh these things that you're feeling are wrong well they're not because they're what the person is feeling and your feelings can't really be incorrect they're internal subjective experiences so in something like this when the children are like we were super unhappy because our parents dragged us to this random alien planet for no freaking reason and then you just go like no, you were really happy. They're just like ignoring the children's experience completely, which mm-hmm. is not a good way to, like, you know, help someone along. It's something that I see a lot of people doing is completely ignoring the internal experiences. It's something that we get a little bit talked about, especially now with some of the online radicalization and things that this is hitting parallels toward. Indeed. That you wind up with people who are not happy in bad family situations or in isolated situations in, you know, school or work or things. And then they find communities where people are nice to them and letting them in and giving them a community. So just telling someone that that's wrong is pretty silly because, you know, they didn't have a community in the one area and they do have a community in the other. I guess the the, the more useful way uh, forward is not just to demand that people change, but to offer them a opportunity to enter a community where they can be, you know, nurtured, taken care of, and not exploited. Yeah, you have to understand why people are feeling certain ways, instead mm-hmm. of just assuming that people's feelings are incorrect. Uh, known a good number of folks that have worked actively to help folks uh, de-radicalize especially the out of right wing sort of uh, leanings there. And to a certain degree, there are, there is a, there is a division you have to sort of be aware of. There are the people that are more running the show in those sort of groups and those that are being sort of exploited and the ones that are running the show, you unfortunately can't do a whole lot with them um, other than sort of cut them out of your, your space and the, and the situation. But uh, the, the rest of folks, Sometimes if you just talk to them, that's going to be enough because then they could realize, oh, you're not 
this monster that these other guys have told you me that you are, and we can actually converse. And but even to get to that bit where you can actually have a conversation is tricky sometimes. And the the the, the leadership of those sort of groups is very active in trying to prevent that at all costs. Because if they have their followers no longer in the thrall, they're going to well, kind of like the episode did. Yeah, the, the people start kind of drifting away and they don't have power over them anymore. I always have trouble with how insidiously we talk about the leadership in these things. There's like this episode, they're using this guy, Gorgonite, as a stand in. Mm-hmm. And he's just unambiguous evil whose entire point and purpose is to manipulate the people around him. The people who lead these groups. Like, even when they get into, like, full-on political-backed power, like like the Nazi party in Germany, like, even the the leaders there, like, they do horrible, horrible things, and there's no excuse for that. But they're also, like, not okay. Yes. People don't get into that situation unless pretty much the same thing is happening to them. And we actually see that a lot if you look at the way people are talking now in right-wing spaces, there's a lot wrapped up in that kind of masculinity pandering and the toxic masculinity things and all the weird, you're going to get turned into a woman fears. A A cultivated paranoia. And it's one that we can see where it came from. Like, I was raised around that. I grew up as a boy in America. Mm -hmm. So, like, I see where they got these ideas. Only the uh, you know strong people play football. You want to play football, right? Yeah, it's that. You kind should play of football thing. because you're a guy. And the more isolated you get pushed to, the more you kind of double down on that. And you're right because with the it's difficult to reach someone who's in one of the leadership positions, largely because if you're going to make a major life change like that, in some ways you have to want to. Yes. You can offer people opportunities and you can try to help, but at the end of the day, the person that you're dealing with has to want to make these changes. And when someone has power and influence like that, they don't see any particular thing wrong. You know, and, you know, why give up this, you know, I guess power you could call it, uh, when, you know, you know, why give it up when you could just keep it and then, you know, keep exploiting these people. It's sort of a... There's other reasons for why they've gotten this position in the first place, but once you're there, this is kind of a thing that will keep them from you know, extracting themselves from it. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons I'm arguing if you're going to sort of sort of tackle this sort of problem, you start lower on the, you know, the totem pole and then you know you know remove that base of support because if people don't have that sort of extra incentive to sort of you know, you know keep themselves from uh, ever thinking about another way of, of being then, you know, they're going to be, you know, if they, if they lack that, there is actual opportunity. Well, this is a different example, but it reminds me of this thing I was reading a while back. There's a, uh, it's like a group that's trying to basically take men who are abusive, who are, you know, being abusive in abusive relationships, and see if they can help them to a point where they will no longer do that. And they figure that it's very, very difficult to even get men who are in that situation to admit anything's wrong or come in for the help because they have a position of, you know, power and influences largely through just 
being like white men in America. Indeed. So when someone's in a privileged position, they have to feel like they're going to lose something in order for them to see it as a problem. So one of the things that they're actually kind of talking about is other people who they see as their peers have to make it clear that this isn't okay. Indeed. And then you feel like you're going to lose the relationship with your peers and friends because it's going to become something that's you know socially unacceptable. Yeah, you know, peer, you know, people you know say that peer pressure is a bad thing, but it can be used for good. It can be used to discourage uh, abusive behavior. Uh, you basically you make it clear that hey, we're all this together, but us over here think this is not cool what you're doing. So could you please cut it out? That's basically the whole community thing. Mm-hmm. We all live close together. We're all very social, and we all kind of keep tabs on each other's behavior. Yeah. And it's kind of great in a way because you know maybe I'm not paying enough attention and I do do something hurtful, and everybody around me goes, "Hey, that wasn't cool." And I go, "Oh, great! I didn't notice. I'll change that for next time." Yeah, it's uh, one of the things I uh, I guess I, I sometimes actively sort of encourage, like, "Hey." Everyone's been acting weird lately. Did I do something wrong here? Because I would really, really like to know if I did. Um, but you know, not everyone you know is sort of weird like me. So, <laughs> so I, I guess I you know generally encourage folks that if you're somebody in your peer group is uh, causing problems, is being hurtful and being harmful, to to speak up and uh, you know because if we're not pulling for each other, then this sort of stuff will continue, and that's not good. The other thing. The thing that makes it interesting in these episodes when they talk about it in Star Trek, this era of Star Trek is so establishmenty. Mm-hmm. The way that they frame this is so like transparently I think they're trying to be sort of anti-communist, but it has a lot of the like anti-early hippie leanings. It's basically this younger generation, which, as we've talked about before, the 50s and 60s, one of the first times in American history where there were so many children coming of age at once that they had an unprecedented amount of financial and political power, and it scared the pants off of the older generation. So we have to be watching out for these kids, you know, not coming up right and being a uh... Being weird and you know getting into the drugs and the sex and the and the violence, and you can kind of tell in the way that they frame this that the entire fear is our kids are not going to appreciate the things we do and think we aren't caring for them, and they're wrong. But that misconception that the kids have that we're not caring for them enough is going to lead them to these other other things all these dangerous hippie things or cults or whatever and black magic and glowing guys with, who are secretly lawyers uh i, I i'm reminding uh, myself now uh, a little bit of uh like the the 80s and 90s growing up that you know there's a lot of like kids rule sort of stuff which is sort of a i guess an inversion of this to a certain degree but it also exploits the sort of same thinking that you know, parents don't understand. Parents are always busy and telling us what to do. But, you know, we're going to be proud and wild kids and, you know, and all sorts of craziness here. And we're going to sort of revel in it. Uh, a sort of a, I guess, sort of a turnabout of some of the, uh, the dynamics, but still 
same sort of pattern here. Well, that one's really interesting for the 80s and 90s because that is the marketing companies. Indeed. <laughs> uh, because of deregulation uh, put in by Ronald Reagan and his administration are now allowed to directly car- target children with advertising. And they are using a very similar kind of, you know, you're kids and you should have the power and you should get to do all the fun stuff and your parents just don't understand you. And it's, it's weird because this is like still how we're selling things. Yep. Like look at the marketing for the Joker movie. It's it's basically the movie your parents don't want you to see. Uh, and my sort of response to that advertisement was sort of like, shrug? Because eh? <laughs> I, I guess going back once again to my own experiences that I sort of saw through a lot of that sort of uh, gimmickry pretty early on. And so I was like, yeah, you're just trying to get us to, you know, get excited about more toys and sure. I'd love to have this crazy play set or this new, you know, sports ball thing with the weird design to it. But I know that's not going to happen because my parents have, you know, five, uh, you know, you know, other siblings that, I, you know, that they're buying stuff for. Yeah. And so I kind of, I guess, grew up a little bit faster and became more cynical. Despite that, <laughs> uh, I, I, I sort of realized as well that this is sort of trying to define for us what fun should be. And that kind of sucks. You weren't in a multi-ethnic friend group with the wheelchair kid and the nerd who could make lasers? I I was supposed to be the one who could make lasers, and I didn't do that until college. <laughs> but when you, like, I don't know, just even in this, it does kind of have sort of a interesting anti-advertising message if you interpret it that way. <laughs> because this the, the way that they were targeting ads at kids was this sort of, was trying to do this kind of, like, almost cultish mentality. <laughs> do, do, do apple jacks taste like apples? Well, uh, those, the parents just don't understand. I've never in my life eaten an apple jack, so I legitimately don't know if they <laughs> taste like apples. <laughs> but uh, can you tell what my kids love cinnamon toast crunch? Hmm. <laughs> because it's filled with sugar. Yes. <laughs> I don't remember the last time I've had cinnamon toast crunch now. Hmm. I had some off-brand ones. I got a cereal at the store that was called S'mores, and I shouldn't have, because it was basically off-brand Cinnamon Toast Crunch mixed with off-brand Cocoa Puffs and like the marshmallows from the off-brand Lucky Charms. That sounds amazing, actually. <laughs> it, it, my, my tummy was not happy with me. You know, uh, now that I think about it, the last time I actually bought and had cereal... Was right before I started not feeling so well recently. <laughs> Me with this connection, oh god! <laughs> Possibly, it is part of this complete breakfast. If did you eat the rest of the complete breakfast? Because that would kill you. Yeah, I, I didn't have my orange juice and my milk and my banana and my waffle and my bacon. And there's like eggs as well too, and maybe maybe something else like toast. <laughs> that was another one. Speaking of your insidious advertising things all those studies of breakfast is the most important meal of the day were paid for by cereal companies whoops i guess fairly uh early on once again i i figured out this is about advertising but how i how my body deals with breakfast if i have too much food early in the day it just makes me feel awful for the entire day so i need to make sure that if i'm going to have breakfast that it is a little more modest than you know what 
anyone was suggesting at the time. So. Everyone does. Your stomach needs time to wake up and get in gear. Exactly. <laughs> I feel like we've run out of things to talk about these uh, uh, the fascism programming. A little bit. Um, is there anything else you wanted to uh, sort of poke at here? Uh, the guy's dressed like an old British royal. A little bit. <laughs> Which I don't know if that was 100% intentional or just the costume they had lying around. Yeah, you know, it's it's third season uh, original series. A lot of stuff they have is just lying around. <laughs> Uh, in fact, I think uh, I was reading something about like most of the, uh, the costumes the, uh, the people on the planet had were reused from previous episodes. So, I was just listening to an interesting thing that draws some parallels there with the uh, American Revolution having the same sort of weird mentality being led by super, super rich, powerful people, but you know, getting all the people below them to believe that it was some sort of grand cause and rise up against the British forces. Yeah. I remember in my uh, history classes that it's like, yeah, the uh, American Revolution was pretty good, but also these guys are kind of demagogues. So think about that, guys. <laughs> well, they were also all like obscenely rich. Yes. It'd basically be like if Jeff Bezos said, hey, the U.S. is taxing Amazon too much, so let's rebel and take Seattle. Independent Washington State. You know, the, uh, because you, know, you, know, you got guys with owning a bunch of land, you know, massive, you know, plantations, you know, you know, guys, you know, with the, the owning the printing press places there. And you know, basically, these folks had tons of money, and that's kind of why they were like hanging out together. I mean, in some ways, it's exactly the same thing because the thing that Amazon's mad at is the government telling them they need to treat their workers better, which was the same thing that they were mad about here. Whoops. <laughs> The, the more they change, the more they stay the same, I guess. <laughs> That's kind of depressing. <laughs> Which is why this episode from the 60s that was probably warning you about how teachers are going to implant your kids with communism because you work too much like a good American has a lot of like very, very striking similarities to a lot of the stuff we're currently talking about in the news. There's a, a, a dynamic here that I guess is really important to be aware of and to, I guess, be sort of conscious of uh, what how these things work so you can avoid falling into these traps, as well as to, I guess, not fall into the pitfalls that they're trying to suggest, I guess, are there, but kind of doing it badly. I, mean, I remember the, the propaganda video that people were sharing around on the not listening to fascists has a guy... It's two guys in 50s suits and hats standing around in the square. And some dude is yelling about how everything wrong with this country is immigrants. And the one guy is going, yeah, those dang immigrants. And the other guy goes, wait a minute, listen to what this guy's actually saying. And then the guy goes, and Catholics. And then the original guy goes, wait a minute, I'm Catholic. So sort of, I guess, a similar thing. I remember uh, a news report uh from the, uh, you know, once again, my, my youth, it was the, the mid-90s, um, there was a big hoopla that there was going to be a skinhead convention in uh, one of the cities near where I was living. And the news reporter, uh, you know, was, you know, like going out and interviewing some people. And they they ran into somebody who was unaware completely about what the skinheads are all about. Because he was an African-American and just like, oh, there's like a club of guys that are angry at the world. We're going to go hang out. Okay, that sounds like a great idea. Whoops. 
So yeah, it reminds me of that. Anyway. <laughs> Alright, I feel like on that note... <laughs> Go something a little more silly. We've been tired and scattered this entire episode, so I hope it was entertaining. But now, it's time for the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! Hey everybody, welcome back to the game show portion of the show. We've been tallying up the points, and uh, we only have three winners this week, but I think they'll be alright. Uh, the first winner is going to be the Gorgon, who gets the Specially Advanced Aliens Award. You know, though, in the end, he wasn't all that advanced, because he was just kind of made to go away. Just because people didn't like him anymore. What does he win, Gapwood? <laughs> Gorgon wins his own YouTube channel, where he can do this properly. Well, YouTube will probably algorithm and he'll be bigger than us in no time. Oops. Now I'm depressed. Moving on. <laughs> Antifa OG Award goes to Kirk and Spock for successfully deprogramming the kids, I guess. Because, you know, they were enthralled with space fascists. So what do they win, Gepwin? Kirk and Spock win a bunch of TV interviews and articles and think pieces of were they really the bad ones and shouldn't they have listened Gorgon's point of view. After all, aren't they just as bad? Because they're also controlling the kids. This is going to be a really awkward conversation. This is getting even more depressing. Um, let's go for one more, Gepwin. Uh, the Fooled You Award, which goes to kids for using illusions to control the crew. Where do they win? The kids all win one of those weird mid-90s spy kits that was all like green-tinted flashlights that they called night vision. So I feel like that would have solved a lot of problems here. Now, at least keep them entertained. Uh, well, long enough for the uh, people on the planet to complete their survey where the health heck they were doing there. Probably a good idea. Let's uh, transport it back in time and uh, we'll get these kids hooked up and we'll avoid this entire plot in the first place. Yeah, now that we've caused a fun, fun space-time paradox... Thanks all of our guests and everyone for joining us on this, the galaxy's favorite game show! So, Gapwin, how are you feeling? Anxious. This next episode sounds strange. Why do you say that? I don't know. The whole... The whole thing looks nonsensical. And also, it's another one of these weird quotes that starts strangely. Yeah, something about uh, truth and beauty and... Hmm. Wait, are we talking about uh, quarks here? The next episode is called, Is There in Truth No Beauty? I feel like there should be a comma in there somewhere. Yeah, is, yeah, is there truth, beauty, there, is, no, yes, maybe. This kind of reminds me of plot of some random stuff that I remember from... Babylon 5. Hmm. The Enterprise travels with an alien ambassador whose appearance induces madness. But what does that mean, madness? No one knows. They've never had a good definition for it. In fact, oh. it doesn't really have a definition. Now, well, uh, I suspect we'll probably not actually see what these aliens are like, but I can always I hope. don't know. But Spock gets to see them because of his Vulcan-style mind discipline. You can avoid uh, the usual pitfalls that us your humans have, I guess. Yeah, so... I so that's going to be a thing. <laughs> this is going to be weird. 
This is, this is very strange. It, this whole episode sounds weird. I've never heard of it before, or this premise. I think I remember something about it, but that's nothing coherent. So I, I enjoyed the uh, picture of uh, Spock with the visor thing going on in these green. Oh, uh, yeah, the visor thing. I don't think we get to see the ambassador because the ambassador isn't credited as a guest star. We get Dr. Pulaski again. Hooray! Why does why do they keep changing this character? They they have her playing another doctor, so why don't they ever just be the same doctor? Um, good question. <laughs> she plays three different doctors across the, the the her run in Star Trek. Maybe she's like uh like a like a quantum leap time traveler. That would make some sense, at least. I don't know. This is <laughs> this is just confusing. Well, but. Anyway, maybe we'll have some idea of what in the world is going on next week on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, put Miranda in the box. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix, and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Mori's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, Please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>